You're listening to Book Insights, brought to you by Memoed. Finding and simplifying the world's most powerful ideas to fit into your lifestyle. Each episode is a deep dive into a nonfiction bestseller that can change your life or make you think. In around 30 minutes, you'll learn all about a book that offers wisdom for your life, career, or business. So get ready to live and work smarter, better, and happier with Book Insights. Everyone has an idol, someone we look up to, revere, and hope to one day resemble. Strangely, though, the story we most often tell ourselves about our hero makes it almost impossible to emulate them. We wonder in awe at what we feel was their meteoric rise to success, driven by superhuman feats, and we shake our head in disbelief. We think, they're a genius, how can I ever ascend to that level? Their success was seemingly achieved by virtue of their intelligence, personality, talents they were born with, and the ambition that's fueled them. We rarely stop to think about the myriad factors that played a role in the success of these outliers or remarkable achievers. That is, the world they were born into, how they were brought up, the opportunities which by complete chance came their way. Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, two modern-day idols for many people, both publicly recognized how lucky they are and were. They were born with smarts and a hard-working quality fostered in them by their parents, but they also succeed due to the locale they grew up in, the resources available to them, and even the era in which they came of age. Yet people are quick to ascribe their success to intelligence and ambition alone. Gates noted, I had a better exposure to software development at a young age than I think anyone did in that period of time, and all because of an incredibly lucky series of events. Malcolm Gladwell noticed this phenomenon. He decided to dig deeper into the factors which determine remarkable achievement. How much is success inherent in the person, and how much is due to environment? The story of success turned out a lot more complex than we believe. Malcolm Gladwell is a highly successful author of six books, including Blink, The Tipping Point, and 2019's Talking to Strangers. He's a prolific journalist, public speaker, and appointee to the Order of Canada. He also has a podcast, Revisionist History. Gladwell initially worked for 10 years at the Washington Post, honing his journalistic craft from basket case to expert writer. According to his 10,000-hour rule, 10 years is the minimum it takes to be able to achieve world-class expert level in a skill. So Gladwell was simply fortunate to get this opportunity at a top newspaper. In a single book, Gladwell debunks the much-storied myth that success and extraordinary achievement are simply the result of genius. Instead, he proposes that the hand of cards you were played in life is more important than any single one, and to think otherwise is not only short-sighted, but even harmful to society. The book chiefly answers three questions, exploring them with stories and examples which, on the surface, might initially appear disparate and unrelated. They are, first, what is the 10,000-hour rule, and how does our understanding of it change our understanding of success? Second, how do our personal ecologies or circumstances affect our life and our approaches to it? In what way do they determine success? Third, what is the role of cultural legacies in success? We'll look at some of Gladwell's examples here, from cultures of honor to Korean air disasters. 
In the early 1990s, psychologist K. Anders Eriksson performed a study involving the students of Berlin's elite Academy of Music. First, the students were placed in one of three categories, those with world-class potential, those deemed to be good, and those destined to become public school music teachers rather than play professionally. The study then identified what differentiated these students' level of skill by asking one question. Since you first picked up a violin, how many hours have you spent on deliberate practice? Deliberate practice means purposeful and systematic practice to which you wholly dedicate yourself. The results were clear. The first group, the best students, had practiced more than everyone else. They had averaged 16 hours a week at age 14 and over 30 hours per week by the age of 20. By 20, each student in this group had thus accumulated 10,000 hours of practice. The other group's members each had only done 8,000 and 4,000 hours, respectively. In further studies carried out by Erickson and his colleagues, 10,000 hours kept coming up as the requisite amount of practice before a high level of mastery could be acquired. That works out at about four hours of practice every day for 10 years. His findings were later echoed in research from many other specialists looking at a wide range of fields. But what about the virtuosos, prodigies, geniuses, and outliers of the world? What about the extraordinary people? They surely don't need so much practice. They're born with talent, right? Here's Gladwell in a TED Talk. So often when we look at great and extraordinary successes, we have some kind of sense that they came from, they came fully flowered. They arrived on the scene and their greatness was already apparent, right? We have a notion that so much of what makes someone good is something natural. Gladwell describes the backstories using many famous examples, the Beatles, Bill Gates, and Mozart. He describes how each completed at least 10,000 hours of practice in the skills they're now so famous for. The Beatles toiled in the clubs of Hamburg for eight hours a night, seven days a week before they became successful, totaling an estimated 270 nights on stage during their year and a half of intermittent visits. When they arrived in the United States and became the new British sensation, they'd been playing together in some incarnation for seven years. The Hamburg club was the crucible of their success, allowing them to perform as a super-tight unit. At his expensive private school in Seattle, Bill Gates began learning programming on top-of-the-range equipment and software. He was only in eighth grade for this opportunity. No one else his age had access to the technology at that time. In the middle of the night, Gates roused himself and slipped out of the family home, commandeering the university's computer when no one else was around. Gates' story tells us something important. People who seem exceptionally gifted turn out to be given exceptional opportunities. They took advantage of these opportunities at a time and place when the payoff for seizing them were great. Gates was the perfect age to be on the ground floor of the personal computer revolution. He was too young to get sucked into working for a large corporation like IBM, but he was just old enough to be out of school and ready to build something new which is what he did, dropping out of Harvard to co-found Microsoft in 1975 with Bill Allen. What about Mozart? The renowned child prodigy wasn't to write a masterful concerto until he turned 21. By this time, he immersed in playing and composing most of his life, taking him well beyond the 10,000 hours needed to be a musical maestro. 
Some even argue that Mozart developed late, since his best pieces were written only after he was composing for two decades. So, mastery and success are not solely products of genius. They're just a matter of starting young, right? Unfortunately, it's not that simple. There are myriad social obstacles which stand in the way of most people achieving such a massive amount of practice, and particularly at a young age. One factor is society's tendency to conflate entrance criteria with excellence criteria. Canadian psychologist Roger Barnsley observed in the 1980s a correlation between the closeness of a hockey player's birth date to the opening of the team's selection season. Players were more likely to be selected for a team the closer they were born to January 1st. January 1st is the eligibility cutoff for youth hockey competitions. At the young age of 12, several months' difference in age leads to significant differences in physical maturity and the amount of practice players have had. This gives the slightly older children an advantage. This small advantage then snowballs. Once picked, these children start getting specialized coaching, expert guidance, and hundreds more hours of dedicated practice than their younger counterparts. Sociologists call this a cumulative advantage. It explains why professional hockey teams are often filled with players born in January, February, and March. This phenomenon, named the relative age effect, also takes place in Major League Baseball and European football, and, more problematically, in education, too. Mistaking maturity for ability in our schooling system leaves an enormous number of children at an arbitrary disadvantage. Those children could potentially be very talented if correctly coached, but our education systems fail to provide that, simply because students are born too close to the end of the academic year. The prevalent societal culture is to hurry talent, rather than patiently foster it over a period of, say, 10 years. This random variable is completely out of an individual's control, yet it often dictates their ability to succeed. The role of luck in accomplishment is clearly bigger than we thought. But Gladwell asks, what other external or environmental factors contribute to attaining success or squandering it? We'll take a quick break. When we return, we'll continue our discussion into Outliers, the story of success. We'll look at personal ecologies, or circumstances that affect our life and our approaches to it. Then we'll define what cultural legacies are. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodapp.com insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights. We're continuing our look into Malcolm Gladwell's 2009 best-selling book on the secret of genius. It's called Outliers, the Story of Success. We'll look into personal ecologies, or circumstances affecting our life and our approaches to it. In what way do they determine success? Why is it counterproductive to understand success as an individual undertaking when it is clearly nested in society? Then we'll ask, what is the role of cultural legacies in success? 
Gladwell paints a neat metaphor to illustrate how we fail to accurately talk about success. The tallest oak tree in the forest is the tallest because its surroundings didn't block its sunlight, the soil was fertile, its acorn and leaves weren't eaten by insects and animals, and no one chopped it down for wood. We recognize almost instinctively that an organism's success is determined by its ecology. We often neglect to take ecology into account when it comes to human success. So what constitutes a person's ecology? It includes the family they were born into, the town where they grew up, the era they lived through, their surrounding culture and society, their language, the opportunities presented to them, the resources they were provided, and so much more. Here's Gladwell talking at a University of Pennsylvania event about what's called the Matthew Effect. From the verse in the New Testament that says, um, to him that has much more will be given, right? We create these systems where we identify a group of people who have a narrow initial advantage, and then we shower them with all kinds of additional advantages, which causes that small difference to grow. Let's stick with education for a moment. It gives us a great example of how a person's background and circumstance can dictate their success. The Johns Hopkins University sociologist Carl Alexander looked at how the math and reading skills of elementary school students change over the year. He tracked the test results of 650 Baltimore students across five grades, grouping the kids by socioeconomic class, low, middle, and high. His results showed that the wealthier children were not outlearning their poorer classmates during the school term, despite their average fifth-grade final scores doubling those of the poorer children. In fact, on average, they were worse learners during term time. The difference came during summer holidays. Comparing scores between the end of the academic year and the beginning of the next, the poorer first- and second-grade students' scores dropped. Meanwhile, the wealthier students' grades increased by an average of 12 points. Across all five years, the wealthier kids' scores experienced a cumulative growth of 52 points during the summer holidays, while the poorer children's results only improved by a cumulative average of 0.26 points. So what was happening during the summer holidays? Wealthier families have the income and leisure time to take their children to museums, music practice, summer camps, and special programs, likely whizzing them from one activity to the next. They fill their houses with books and opportunities to learn. They ensure their children are engaged. They do so by asking questions, discussing things, challenging them. The poorer families, by contrast, aren't able to provide these opportunities as they're perhaps working two or three jobs to fund the household. It's clear who's going to have a more productive summertime in terms of grade progression. Gladwell cites sociologist Annette Leroux, who identified two parenting strategies that divide almost perfectly along class lines. Poorer parents adopted a strategy of caring for their children while allowing them space to grow and develop perhaps leaving them to their own devices. Wealthier parents, on the other hand, predominantly used what Leroux called a concerted cultivation style for raising their children. They heavily involved themselves in every detail of their children's lives. Not only does this latter approach facilitate the growth of curriculum-related skills, as seen above, but it also actively fosters skills in what psychologist Robert Sternberg calls practical intelligence. This is knowing what to say, when to say it, and how to say it in order to get a result from a particular person. 
These are all social skills that are cultivated by being constantly exposed to changing experiences. It's something wealthier parents have the resources to ensure their children undergo. It's important to note that Leroux wasn't suggesting either parenting style is morally superior, rather that one produces greater advantages in the established schooling system, as seen with the test scores above. There's a higher likelihood that one will provide the opportunity and circumstances for a young person to achieve 10,000 hours of practice in a relatively short amount of time. Violin or ballet classes, for instance, are expensive, and many families won't be able to afford the investment in their child. Cultures of honor have most often developed in mountainous or highland areas where inhabitants can't farm. Instead, they are forced into lives as herdsmen, raising goats or sheep to survive. Herdsmen are lone workers. They live with the constant threat of their livestock being stolen or killed by predators. In response, the herdsman has to be aggressive and show no weakness. They must be seen as strong at every moment under any circumstance. His reputation means his life. So to maintain it, he must be ready to fight against even the slightest challenge. Everyone else within that community will accept such a reaction as the norm and defend his right to it. This is what culture of honor means. Nowadays, the backcountry of the American South is still recognized as having a reigning culture of honor. Murder rates exceed in these regions. But crimes where those involved don't know each other are lower than elsewhere. Gladwell explains that the culture of honor in the Deep South was carried over from Britain by the first settlers in the 1600s. New inhabitants were predominantly from one of the fiercest examples of a culture of honor. These were the Scotch-Irish, from the infertile rocky regions of Scotland's lowlands, England's northern counties, and Ulster in Northern Ireland. The legacy of the old world survived in the new world, and to a certain extent still survives today hundreds of years later. But it goes deeper than that. An experiment in the early 1990s looked at students of the University of Michigan. It aimed to identify whether the culture of honor still featured in the characters of students from the South who had traveled to one of the northernmost states to go to college. These students lived nothing at all like the Scotch-Irish settlers of old and perhaps weren't at all related to any such settlers. Despite this, the culture of honor still pervaded their actions. When insulted, the Southerners became significantly angrier than their northern counterparts, with the upsurge in cortisol and aggression to prove it. What does this tell us? Our lives can be determined by factors which originate long before we even came into the world. These factors can play an inescapable role in what we do and what happens to us, no matter where we go. These are our cultural legacies, of which we are often scarcely conscious. Let's break one final time before we conclude our discussion on Gladwell's outliers. We'll examine an example of honor cultures, then we'll end by examining some of the criticisms and legacies of the book. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodeapp.com slash insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights.
We're concluding our look into Malcolm Gladwell's book on the story of success. It's called Outliers. Here's Gladwell in a TED Talk discussing the 10,000-hour rule and Fleetwood Mac. When Bob Welch finally leaves the band, that they hired Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Now that process took 10 years and 16 albums. They're not some kind of overnight sensation. They are a band that was a decade in the making. We'll look at some of Gladwell's examples of honor cultures, such as Korean air disasters, and how negative legacies can be reshaped into something positive. Then we'll end by reflecting on the book's triumphs and criticisms. Dutch psychologist Geert Hofstede was working for IBM's Human Resources Department in the 60s and 70s. He was sent from country to country interviewing employees. His goal was to better understand cultural differences so IBM could decide how best to manage their staff across more than 50 countries. What he came up with is still widely used in cross-cultural studies today. That is, he initially identified four cultural dimensions that could distinguish one culture from another. We'll only look at the first for mastering cultural legacy, Power Distance Index, or PDI. Power distance describes a culture's level of acceptance of class inequality. This includes its attitudes toward authority and its people's understanding of their place within society. A low power distance country will share its power, widely dispersing it and questioning where it amasses. Example low power distance countries are Austria, Israel, New Zealand, and not quite so low, the United Kingdom and United States. High PDI countries include Malaysia, Mexico, China, and slightly lower Colombia and South Korea. Hierarchy is clearly established and executed in these. From the late 1970s until the late 90s, Korean Air had a catastrophic record of plane crashes. It resulted in Delta Airlines and Air France suspending partnerships with the airline. The U.S. Army forbade its personnel from traveling on it. South Korea's safety rating with the U.S. Federal Aviation Authority plummeted. Quite spectacularly, though, since 1999, Korean Air's safety record has been spotless. What happened? Let's look again at Power Distance Index. South Korea still scores quite high today in its Power Distance Index. In a study of pilots' PDI done in the late 90s, South Korean pilots scored second highest. What does that mean in practice? Within South Korean flight crews, all staff ranking below the captain were highly unlikely to challenge the captain or give him a command. They were mortified at even the thought of doing so. This can be critical in a cockpit. When problems arise during flights, direct communication between everyone on board and with air traffic control on the ground is key. But a South Korean pilot would prefer to only hint at the possibility of issues. And the Korean language is perfectly suited to them doing just that. It contains six different levels of conversational address. A first officer wouldn't have thought of using any but the most formal with their captain and air traffic control. This can lead to massive communication breakdowns in the most stressful of moments. Now, you may question how nearly two decades of plane crashes can be attributed to a linguistic idiosyncrasy and cultural attitude, but consider that Korean Air completely turned around its safety record after it decided to adopt another language to train flight crews in. Since they shifted to using English in the cockpit, there have been no more crashes. That's the power of accepting your cultural legacy and deciding to counter it. Thank you.
Let's pause for a second to recap. First, we learned about the 10,000-hour rule for mastering skills and how systems confuse entrance criteria with excellence criteria. We are impatient with talent and create arbitrary cutoff points to try streamlining those with any semblance of potential early on towards success, leaving others behind. Second, we looked at how influential external factors are on our lives, such as where we're born, the opportunities we're presented with, and the resources we're provided with. Third, we rejoiced in the knowledge that as long as we can recognize our cultural legacies and acknowledge their importance, then we can react to them and decide upon a more effective path. Gladwell's book has been criticized for its apparent argument for cultural determinism. This means that we're the product of the cultures and backgrounds we emerge from. This could lead to cultural, national, or racial stereotyping. Gladwell rejects this. He is not saying that some cultures and countries are superior to others. Each has its strengths and advantages. Each offers channels and norms which help people thrive, and each has cultural legacies which hold people back. With outliers, he simply wanted to correct the mistaken assumption that family legacy and luck in the time and place we were born are immaterial in achievement. They are, and much more than our individualistic culture would have us believe. At the same time, Gladwell carefully doesn't underplay the role that hard work, openness to opportunity, and optimism play in success. Outliers is his letter to the world to say, you can succeed, and you don't need to be a genius to do so. It's the permission for all of us to free ourselves from the shackles of our cultural legacy, but also of wrong self-perceptions. Many people think that success involves braininess, but Gladwell attempts to dismantle the link. You just have to be smart enough. Beyond that, it's traits of personality and character that make all the difference. Any deficiency in sheer brain power can be made up for in other areas. Greater knowledge, more systematic research skills, better ability to make idea connections, or social smarts to get ahead in the workplace. They can all be acquired. As philosopher Hannah Arendt pointed out in The Human Condition, every human birth represents the chance of something new, something great. The only thing we can be certain of when it comes to people is that they will continually surprise us. We can get pretty good at likelihoods, but the ultimate outcome of a person's life will hinge on unpredicted personal revolutions. It is one thing to have in place a predictable and powerful set of circumstances and opportunities, but this is usually only half the story. The other half is a person's decision to answer a great call or challenge which will take them to a higher level. This has nothing to do with culture or background and everything to do with personal epiphanies, flashes of inspiration, or sudden realizations about which path to take. Look at it this way. The world we are born into is the springboard, but it's we who take the leap. Thank you for listening to Book Insights. Check out the rest of our content at memodap.com. Please keep in mind that the information provided in or through our Book Insights episodes is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not intended to be a substitute for advice given by qualified professionals and should not be relied upon to disregard or delay seeking professional advice.